Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, June the 2nd, 2022. It is currently 10.02 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where just a few minutes ago, I'm like, you know what? I have an opportunity. Run upstairs. So I ran up the stairs, come running around this table, and hit, well, the go live button to bring you an impromptu live broadcast. I don't know if I should do this right now. I don't know. There's a part of me like, don't, 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 don't. You should wait. You should wait until you know you have more time. But I... But I like this to be very organic and very real. So let me explain what we're going to do here. This is going to be kind of a very brief introduction to an introduction, okay? Does that make any sense? Maybe it will. Uh, the other day, I believe, it was, I believe it was yesterday, I did a podcast episode talking about the very popular devotional, Jesus Calling. And the reason I was talking about it is because there's a news report that I'm looking at telling us that the devotional Jesus Calling has now sold more than 40 million copies. Or as the news article says, Jesus called, 40 million people answered. Now, I could give you, uh, I think, about 10 possible problems with the Jesus Calling devotional. Someone sent me an article, I think that outlines 10 problems. And I could sit here and go through all 10 possible problems and say, hey, you need to be very careful with this devotional if you hear other people talking about it. But instead of doing that, and at some point we may explore the article that was sent to me, and I'm very appreciative that someone sent it to me. Um, I At some point we may go through that, but I, I like to... Well, I, I like to set aside what everyone is saying and just look at the actual thing that everyone is talking about for myself and see what we can discover. So clearly there are some out there, or well, I should say there are very few out there. Maybe uh, maybe when the book was first released, there were more voices offering up possible concern, but there are some that are, hey, this, this devotional Jesus Calling that has sold more than 40 million copies, there are some serious theological issues with it. Some people are saying that. Now, I could just give you that information, or we could just spend a little time looking at what's actually in the devotional and exploring it for ourselves and seeing what we find. Instead of coming at the book with some presuppositions, we come at the book and just say, hey, let's see what we discover, and then that will challenge us to think and to, and to search the scriptures for ourselves. So I think that is what we're going to do. So this morning, I purchased a copy of Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Now, the fact that it's sold... Now, for me, here, and, and I, I hope this will make sense to you, by no means am I diminishing or, or saying in any way, shape, or form that the theological issues with the book are not important. One, I don't know for sure how what the theological problems may be because I haven't read the book. Correct. So I can listen to everyone else, and I and in no way am I saying that's not important. But for at the beginning, I'm not as interested in the theological issues. This is what I am more interested in. And I know some people are going to be like, "How dare you say that?" Just just listen to me, okay? I'm just being very real with you. What I am most fascinated by is why a devotional book has sold 40 million copies. 
I'm always baffled or, or I'm baffled. I'm confused. And I'm always curious to why, like, so why is that? But why is all the Christians around the world reading that book? Why is everyone talking about that book? What makes that book so amazing? The same thing can, can happen when some preacher reaches like some celebrity status and you, you have all these people like his sermons are the uh, uh, greatest. His books are the greatest. You've got to listen. You've got, it's like, you know, nobody could understand the Bible until that person came along. And so I'm always curious about what, what is it? What is it? So I will go listen to that, 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 that supposed celebrity pastor. I will go read that book. Sometimes I walk away going, okay. All right, I can understand that person has great communication skills. He's a good speaker. It's just it's just kind of fun to listen to him. I, I I can at least see why. Or I'll read a book and go, okay, I I guess I could see why this would be popular. And then there are other times I'm like, wait, what? That you think that's like the greatest preaching you've ever heard? And I'm just kind of like, I'm I'm confused. And I'll look at the book and I'm like, wait, what? This is the greatest devotional that you've ever read. Again, an example I gave in our in the last broadcast where we introduced this whole topic was my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers. I I'm still to to this day I don't understand everyone's praise of that. Like everyone's like, this is the greatest devotional. Not so much today. Maybe that's that's kind of you know years ago. So I don't I don't know. I don't think that's the case today. Well obviously today it's Jesus calling. That's the devotional. But back when everyone was praising my utmost for his highest by Oswald Chambers, I was just like, I don't get this. I do not understand what everyone thinks is so great about it. So I'm curious whenever a book reaches this kind of you know, millions and millions of copies sold. I'm curious about the why. Not so that I can just criticize it. I mean, even though there's always a little part of me to going, if it's popular, it's got to be bad. There's always a little bit of that in me. But honestly, there's just an intellectual curiosity going, huh? So so what, what, what am I missing? Like, if I don't get it, I'm bothered by I don't get it. I don't know why this is popular. What am I missing? And a lot of times when you go to people going, hey, you told me this is the greatest book in the world. Can you explain why? And sometimes listening to them, you're like, I'm not quite sure I even understand what you're, do you even understand what you're saying? So I, I'm somewhat, I, I miss the phenomenon of this book being so popular. I, again, I honestly, I don't know how I missed it wasn't paying any attention. And somewhere, millions of people were like, Jesus calling, Jesus calling. And, and all of a sudden, when I finally read a news article about it, I'm like, wait, when did this happen? Wait, was I, was I away from planet Earth? Like, how did I miss this? So I am now curious. So what we're going to do is I have a copy of the book right here in front of me on my Kindle. Yes, I had to pay $9 for it. Didn't want to pay the money, but... You know, I, I, I feel like that it's the only right thing to do if this is that popular within the world of Christianity, at least for us to look at it. Again, I could go find articles on the internet saying bad, and I could read the article going bad, and we would all walk away going bad, but that wouldn't really be fair, right? That really wouldn't be fair. So we're going to take a look at it. So Jesus Calling has topped more than 40 million copies sold, and I have the book right here, and guess what I have it opened up to? The introduction. Now, I probably should have called this Jesus Calling Introduction Part 1 because I don't think we're going to be able to cover this in one broadcast 
but we're going to work through the introduction. And now this is not going to turn into some like, we're not going to work through all the book. This book is not in public domain. So like a imitation of Christ, we can just kind of read through it. This, I would not be allowed to do that, but we will take different segments from it and we'll do a number of broadcasts going, okay, the devotional on this day. And then if you want to get a copy of the book and and then you can, you can look at it for yourself. Okay. So I can't just read it all, but we will examine segments that I either find great. I'm going to try to balance it. Those things that I think are great in the book, I'll do broadcast and point some, just a few of those out. And those things that I think are maybe absolutely horrific and theological heresy, I'll do a couple of episodes and point that out. Then I'll give you a kind of a balanced presentation and then maybe a summary. That's where we don't, you know, violate any copyright laws or anything like that. But I am going to work through the introduction because this sets up the whole book. Right. And I think it really I think this could be very important. So are you ready? Here we go. Introduction, Jesus calling. And it starts off with this. I first experienced the presence of God in a setting of exquisite beauty. Now, let's stop right here. I could be wrong. But, oh, well, let me, let, I'm not even going to say that. I'll explain how I could be wrong. But let me start here. I think if I had a, um, I'm sitting in the classroom or the homeschool classroom here, it, it, right up in front of me on the wall, there's a whiteboard. And I want to grab one of the markers, like if I, if you were watching me, and I would want to write on the marker, I would want on one hand, on the left-hand side, I would write exper- you see, experience, right, experience. And on the other side, I would put, how would I do this? I would put experiential, there we go, experiential Christianity. And then on the other side, I would put intellectual Christianity. Experiential Christianity versus intellectual Christianity. Experiential intellectual. Within the body of Christ, There are many who are drawn to an experiential Christianity. They want to have an experience. They want to experience the presence of God. They want to feel the presence of God. They want to have a religious or spiritual, they may not like the word religious, a spiritual encounter, a spiritual experience, experiential on the other side, there are those who are not, they, 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 the whole experiential thing they think is subjective. They think it, they kind of call it into question. They're suspect of it. They're kind of cynical of it. And they're more drawn to an intellectual Christianity where it's doctrine and theology and Greek and Hebrew and hermeneutics. That they believe is less subjective. It's more objective. Here is truth. Here is the meaning of these words. And and this almost creates two different forms of Christianity, an experiential kind and an intellectual kind. Now, some people have longed to bring the two worlds together, right? That it can be an an intellectually satisfying and, and an intellectual, thoughtful Christianity, but it doesn't deny the experiential aspect of it. The Jesus Calling devotional just starts right from the beginning with, I first experienced the presence of God. 
clearly establishing a, a, an experiential approach to Christianity. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, whenever I read, I first experience the presence of God. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm the kind of person to kind of go, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. This experiential thing, it's going to be touchy-feely, subjective, and, and it's like, are, are you sure you experience the presence of God? And the reason I'm so cynical and I, I'm just so, I'm a skeptic, I'm so skeptical about this is so many times when I hear someone say, oh, last night in church, we felt the, we felt the presence of God. The Holy Spirit was present. It was so powerful. And I'm like, oh, do you have video or, or what? And then you go and watch it and you're like, well, that's interesting. See, they had the, the, the light, the lights were darkened. Maybe they had some candles going and the praise band was playing in, in a very emotional way. And it's like, it seems like that what you were experiencing was a human production designed to manipulate and impact your emotions. And you're connecting that to the presence of God when it is nothing more than the setting, the mood, the music, the stage, the lighting, the words, the tone of voice. You know, even when the, the, pra the praise band leader, you know, do you feel him? you feel the presence of God? And as the music plays softly in the background, and I'm like, I don't know if you experienced the presence of God. That, that, that's an experiential. You had an experience. It was experiential, but I think you felt nothing more than the human being, your emotions being manipulated through human um, emotional manipulation techniques. They were doing everything you're supposed to do. Now, when I say that, I, people get very offended at me, but I'm just very skeptical of the whole, I experienced the presence of God. Now, that's going to set off that, and, and, I'm, and the reason I'm talking about this is when I was, I want you to know those two different worlds of Christianity. Some of you who listen to this program, you may long for the experiential kind. You may be in the experiential camp. I'm always coming at it from more of the intellectual perspective, right? That, that is a, like the people on the experiential side and the people on the intellectual side typically are speaking completely different languages. They're not even talking the same language. So it's hard to even sometimes realize that they're quote unquote within the same religion, that we're even within the same Christianity. It's almost like two different kinds of Christianity. Yes? No? Okay. M maybe you agree. Maybe you disagree. I'm saying that like there's someone in the classroom right here who's going to say something to me, but you get the idea. So I just think that this is, I, the reason I want to talk about this is because when, as we look at the devotional, you can see that I may have some initial issues, especially if it's starting off with, I first experienced the presence of God in a setting of exquisite beauty. Now, is it possible that what you experienced was being in the presence of exquisite beauty? Was it the location? Was it the setting? Had nothing to do with God. It had to do with just your own emotions because of the setting in which you found yourself. Let's see what they have to say here. I first experienced the presence of God in a setting of exquisite beauty. I was studying at a Christian community in a tiny Alpine village in France. 
This was a branch of Labrie, an international ministry that began in Switzerland through Francis and Edith Schaeffer's work. During my stay at Labrie, I often explored the fairyland-like environment all around me. Now, please note. See, now there's a setting. As, as the, the author, a fairyland-like environment. I just find it interesting that sometimes people who have an experience with God, there's so many other factors that play in that can manipulate emotion. Now, I know I know some, some of you are like, you're such a skeptic. You're such, you're almost like an agnostic. Okay, you're almost like an atheist. No, I'm not. I just... I, I just so many times this experiential kind of Christianity just seems so subjective and wishy-washy. And it's like, I, I don't know. I, I just have my issues with it. But here we go. So they're exploring the fairyland-like environment all around me. It was late winter and the new day sun was warm enough for sunbathing. But the depth of the snow kept it from melting. Brilliant sunlight reflecting from pure white snow was cleansing my mind of the darkness that had held it captive for years. Now, very beautifully written paragraph, very vivid, very painting the picture. So this this is a possible good sign that the devotional is going to have some very, um, is going to be beautifully written, but beautifully written words. No matter how poetic, no matter how emotional, no how how much they may pull you or touch you, no matter how powerful they may be, that is not an indication of doctrinal correctness or theological accuracy or hermeneutical truth. Right? It it could be just because something is beautifully written and you're drawn to it doesn't mean that it's true, doesn't mean that it's hermeneutically accurate, doesn't mean it's theologically correct, doesn't mean that it's orthodox. It just means it's emotional and beautifully written. Every day I climbed up a steep hill to attain a view that delighted my soul. As I stood at the top, I would lose myself in a panorama of unbroken beauty. Below me was the village that had become that had become my home. Viewed from the height, the village was dominated by a high steepled church. Turning 180 degrees, I could see Lake uh, Geneva far below me, shouting greetings in refractured sunbeams. When I looked up, I saw icy tips of Al- of the Alpine mountains encircling me. I would turn around and around, absorbing, uh, absorbing as much as I could with two eyes in a finite mind. Again, very, very beautifully written, beautifully written. But I just, you're experiencing the presence of God. I, you, you're talking about, well, all of these just tangible, earthly, fleshly things that gives you some sense of beauty, some sense of wonder. It's one thing to say you experienced the wonder and beauty of nature, which reminded you of the fact that God is creator. It depends on how what direction you're going with this. The daughter of a college professor, I had been encouraged, the daughter of a college professor, I had been encouraged to read widely and think for myself. I had majored in philosophy at Wellesley College and had almost completed my master's degree in child development at Tufts University 
A few months earlier, my brother had asked me to read Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason. To my great surprise and delight, that small book had answered questions I'd long before dismissed as unanswerable. It was the intellectual integrity of Schaeffer's books that had drawn me to this pristine place. I was searching for absolute, unchanging truth, a foundation on which to build my life. Shortly after I settled into the home I shared with other students, I met a gifted counselor who had come from the Swiss branch of Labrie to talk with some of us. I went into the room where she was waiting, and she told me to close the door. Before I even had time to sit down, she asked her first question, Are you a Christian? I answered that I wasn't sure. I wanted to be a Christian, but I didn't really understand why I need Jesus. I thought that, I, that, I thought that knowing God might be enough. Her second question was, what can you not... Uh, her second question was, what can you not forgive yourself for? This question brought me face to face with my sinfulness, and immediately I understood my need for Jesus to save me from my sins. Later, when I was alone, I asked him to forgive all my sins and be my Savior, God. One night, I found myself leaving the warmth of our cozy, uh, our cozy room to walk alone in the snowy mountains. I went into a deeply wooded area feeling vulnerable and awed by cold, moonlit beauty. The air was crisp and dry, piercing to inhale. After a while, I came into an open area and I stopped walking. Time seemed to stand still as I gazed around me in wonder, soaking in the beauty of this place. Suddenly, I became aware of a lovely presence with me. And my involuntary response was to whisper, sweet Jesus. This experience of Jesus's presence was far more personal than the intellectual answers for which I'd been searching. So she, she feels something. And she just immediately says, sweet Jesus. And she immediately just acknowledged that Jesus was present. She just knew it. This is an experiential kind of Christianity. See, the intellectual side of me is like, well, how did you know it was you? You had a feeling? You just had a feeling and you knew it was Jesus. How did you know? And people will say, well, you'll just know. Are you sure? Are you sure? Because there's lots of people and lots of religions who claim some kind of experiential, you know, they will, they will, uh, they will claim some kind of great experience that supposedly gives them some kind of idea of proof that their God is real or their God was present. The burning in the bosom by Mormons claiming that. I mean, people who completely deny the Trinity, one is Pentecostals, claiming some religious experience that God was present. I mean, I, I, that's why I'm so, when it comes to the experiential side, I'm so skeptical because I'm just like, it was a feeling. It was an emotion that, what does that actually prove? How do you know? To me, the greatest way for people to be deceived is to, to, to follow an experience, an experience, to follow an experiential kind of idea to me just leads to deception, right? Uh, this was a relationship with the creator of the universe, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. The following year, back in the United States, I had another encounter with the presence of Jesus. 
I was grieving the loss of a serious dating relationship and wondering whether being a Christian made much difference in the quality of my life. Now, it's always, okay, well, it's like I had this amazing experience with God, and then a little bit later, I'm like, you know, uh, the following year, because I had a bad breakup, I'm like, oh, well, does being a Christian really make much difference in the quality of my life? It's almost like, well, wait, what, what? So within a year, the first experience had already so weakened that now you're questioning whether Christianity makes any difference. What, what would it make any difference if Christianity made any difference? You felt the presence of God. And if you think about it, sometimes when you read the Old Testament, Israel had constant, quote unquote, encounters with God, and it never seemed to make a difference, did it? But okay. At that time, I was working as a technical writer in Virginia. My boss sent me to Atlanta to attend a conference. I accepted this assignment dutifully and checked into my hotel with, without enthusiasm. Alone in my room, I felt waves of desolation wash, wash over me. So I began walking the streets of Atlanta aimlessly, trying to escape my solitude. I glanced at some books in an outdoor stall and was drawn to Beyond Ourselves by Catherine Marshall. That night, as I read the book, I no longer felt alone. I knelt beside the bed in that sterile room and felt an overwhelming presence of peace and love come over me. I knew that Jesus was with me and that he sympathized with my heartache. This was the unquestionable, the same sweet Jesus I encountered in the snowy splendor of the Alps. Now, I do like the fact that now this one is not the, this situation has nothing to do with the, the exquisite beauty that they were encountering. This is in kind of a sterile room, but still the emotions were very high. They'd gone through a relationship. So, so once again, there's an emotional connection to this. During the next 16 years, I lived without, with what? I lived what many people might consider an exemplary Christian life. I went to Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, where I earned a master's degree in counseling and biblical studies. While there, I met my husband, Steve, a third-generation missionary to Japan. After graduation, we spent two years, uh, two four-year terms in Japan doing church planning ministry. We had a baby girl during our first term and a baby boy during our furlough in the United States. After our second term, we returned to the U.S. for three years. We lived in Atlanta, where Steve worked with a local Japanese church, and I earned a further degree in counseling at Georgia State University. As a part of my training, I worked as a Christian counseling center in the Atlanta area. I cherished my experience of helping deeply wounded women find healing in Christ. I was also thankful for my kind, loving husband and our two delightful children, who were the main joys of my life. However, not once during those 16 years did I vividly experience the presence of Jesus? So I was ready to begin a new spiritual quest. I started with delving into a, a devotional book, The Secret of the Abiding Presence by Andrew Murray. The theme of this book is that God's presence is meant to be a continual experience of Christians. Murray emphasizes the importance of spending time alone with God in quiet, uninterrupted communion. I began reading the book at a very unstructured time in my life. We were waiting for our Australian visas to be approved so that we could begin a church among the Japanese people living in Melbourne. I had, quite my, I had quit my counseling job to prepare for the move overseas, so I was adjusting to the loss of this fulfilling work. In the midst of these mo momentous changes, I began seeking God's presence in earnest. My days started alone with God, equipped with Bible, devotional book, prayer journal, pen, and coffee. An hour or two alone with him seemed too brief. 
The uncertainties I faced at that time deepened my increasing increasing closeness to God. My husband and my my husband and I had no idea how long it would take to receive permanent residency visas, so the waiting period seemed waiting period seemed to stretch indefinitely into the future. During that period, I had four surgeries, including two for melanoma, a Bible verse that comforted comforted me. During this difficult time of waiting, also accompanied me on the seemingly endless flight to Australia. Isaiah 55, 12. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. Now stop right here. I would call. See, now this is the the experiential kind of Christianity. Just reads a verse and goes, oh, I was comforted by that. Because it says you're going to go out in joy and you're going to be led forth in peace. That's I'm going to, that's going to apply to my situation and see the intellectual Christianity goes, time out, time out. What's that verse? Who was that verse? Who was that spoken to? What was the context? What was the historical setting? Does that have any application to you or to me? Who is that about? You will go out in joy. Who's the you in the text? The intellectual Christianity says, no, I've got to figure this out using biblical hermeneutics. The experiential just says, oh, this was so comforting. This was, and and that's, see, that's why I have such a major problem with the experiential kind of Christianity. It just turns the Bible into Plato. You just grab whatever you want and just twist it into whatever shape and go, look what I made. Yeah, look what you made. Yeah, it's not. Right, so so we we may come back to Isaiah fifty five twelve. Um, let me see how how much more time do we have here in the introduction? Oh, the introduction goes a long way. It goes a long way. Um, let's just do this since this is the uh, uh, first major scripture being quoted here. I'm going to do something. I'm going to go to Isaiah fifty five. We may not get any further here than this, but that's okay. Because the introduction of the book is critical in helping us understand. It may help me understand why this book is so popular. Maybe I'm getting an idea why. Because a lot of people, I think, are drawn to the experiential form of Christianity. All right? And so um, if we go to Isaiah 55, um, see what we have going on here. Do we have... All right, so if we go to verse 4, okay, if we go to verse 3, um, Isaiah 55, 3, and I'm just using the Bible that I have right here next to me, okay? It says, pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindness of David, since I have made him a witness to the peoples and leaders and commanders for the peoples. So you will summon a na- So you will summon a nation you do not know, and nations you do not know, who do not know you will run to you for the Lord, our God, even the Holy one of Israel has glorified you. Okay. This clearly is not about me or you. This has something to do with Israel. I know it's a shock, right? It's a shock. Okay. Uh, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and and to our God, for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is first and foremost directed towards Israel. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return, uh, 
there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat. So my word that cometh from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Is that not directly referring to Israel? And is that not, I mean, is there not specific historical connections there? You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. Going out from where? What what is this a reference to? I'm just going to do a quick search here. I'm just going to, I'm just curious to see. I mean, I could, I could tell you what I think that verse is referring to, but I'm just going to see how difficult it is to come up with some possible ideas. I'm just going to type in Isaiah 55, 12. All right. I'm just going to just immediately pull up some commentaries here. All right. All right, you you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. This is the very first commentary I pulled up. Just one Google search, click the uh, go to biblehub.com, immediately go down to the commentaries and I read this. A strong contrast. So they they quote, you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. They tell you to compare Isaiah 35:10, Isaiah 49 through 11, Isaiah 43, 3 through 6, 19 through 21. So there's a lot of cross-referencing going on here. And then they immediately write these words. A strong contrast is frequently drawn between the exodus from Babylon and that from Egypt. This is referring to them coming out of Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity. And she grabbed this and a Bible verse that comforted me during this difficult time of waiting also accompanied me on the seemingly endless flight to Australia. So a verse about Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity. Are you claiming this as a promise? Are you claiming this for yourself? So immediately I already know this devotional is going to have some possible hermeneutical issues, right? We can almost see that right from the outset. Okay, so let's let's see if we can read a little bit more. I don't know if we can finish this. But we'll see if we can. We settled in Australia and began our dual ministries. I supported Stephen planning the first ever Japanese church in Melbourne. My main ministry focus was counseling Australian women, some of them who were coming out of terrible abuse and spiritual bondage. Our combined ministries subjected our family to intense spiritual warfare, and I prayed for protection every morning. One morning as I prayed, I visualized God protecting each of us. I pictured first our daughter, then our son, and then Steve encircled by God's protective presence. When I prayed for myself, I was suddenly enveloped in brilliant light and profound peace. I had not sought this powerful experience of God's presence, but I received it gratefully and was strengthened by it. Here we go. So now now the experiences are getting much more intense, right? So now you see, this is, this is definitely, this devotional is, at least from the introduction, this is going experiential, experiential, clearly not going the intellectual way because we've already seen a, a, a horrible, a possibly very, I'm going to just say questionable use of a verse in Isaiah. They go on to say, only two or three days later, a counseling client who was an incest survivor began remembering experiences of a satanic ritual abuse. 
The form of Satan worship involves subjecting victims who were often young children to incredibly evil, degrading tortures. My courageous client and I walked together into the darkness of her memories, but God had prepared me for stepping for stepping into deep darkness by first bathing me in his glorious light. So I guess was this a did she did she get step into glorious light and some kind of just a mental image or was it a physical light? Okay. I realized that that experience of God's presence were not only for my benefit, benefit, but was also preparation for helping others. The following year, I began to wonder if I could change my prayer times from monologue to dialogue. Oh, boy. Okay. Now, when I hear someone's going to turn their prayer from a monologue to a dialogue, I, I get a little concerned. I get a little concerned, okay? Now, are you going to say you're going to tell God and you're going to read your read his word? And that's the dialogue? Okay, here we go. I have been writing in prayer journals for many years, but this was one-way communication. I did all the talking. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God might want to communicate to me on a given day. I decided to listen with pen in my hand and writing down whatever I heard in my mind. As J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Your Father Loves You, God guides our minds as we think things out in his presence. This is how I was listening to him, by focusing on Jesus and his word while asking him to guide my thoughts. I was not listening for an audible voice. I was spending time seeking God's face. Well, at least it's not an audible voice, so it's not full-blown charismatic theology, but this is still that very subjective thing. I'm sitting there, I'm listening, and I get a thought in my mind. And is that God? What makes you think that thought is from God? You you are a sinner with a sinful nature. What makes you think? The only thing I know is when I read my Bible, that's from God. Whatever comes to my mind, who says that's from God? That is subjective and questionable at best. Again, this experiential kind of thing. My journaling thus changed from monologue to dialogue. This new way of communicating with God became the high point of my day. Of course, I knew my writings were not inspired as only scripture is, but they were helping me grow closer to God. This became a delight, a delightful way to encourage myself in the Lord. Okay, I, it's not inspired, but supposedly it's coming from God. You see how how this blurs the line? Okay, it it came from God, but it's not inspired. Okay, but what is it then? Is it actually, do you really believe that's actually the words God was giving you to write down? Because that sounds very much like inspiration, right? Okay, as I was learning to seek God's face, be still and know that I am God, um, became a life-changing verse, Alternate readings, be still or relax, let go and cease striving. This is an enticing invitation from God to lay down our cares and seek his presence. Among other resources, praying, finding our way through duty to delight has been a helpful, uh, has been helpful. The book written by J.I. Packer and Carolyn Nistrom contains a wonderful quote from Martin Luther. If the Holy Spirit should come and begin to preach to your heart, giving you rich and enlightened thoughts, Be quiet and listen to him who can talk better than you and know what he proclaims and write it down. So will you experience miracles? As David says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of thy law. 
during the the uh, the years that I've been waiting in God's presence and listening with pen in, in hand, I have found themes of his of his peace becoming more prominent in my writing. I'm sure this tendency reflects in part my personal need. However, when people open up to me, I find that most of them also desire the balm of Jesus' peace. This practice of being still in God's presence has increased my intimacy with him more than any other spiritual discipline. So I want to share some of the writings I have gleaned from these quiet moments. In many parts of the world, Christians seem to be searching for a deeper experience of Jesus' presence and peace. The devotion that follows address that felt need. Right, so this all comes from these times in the presence where she's, in a sense, having a dialogue with God. That, that at least makes me suspect. Now, if God, if she's having a dialogue with God, then one thing I should know is this should be the most hermeneutically correct devotional in the history of mankind, but I've already seen a very questionable use of a verse in Isaiah. See where I get skeptical? I think God would know, hey, that was about Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity. I think God would know that, right? Um, the Bible's the only infallible and errant word of God. Okay, well, praise God. I agree with you there. And I endeavor to keep my writings consistent with that unchanging standard. Well, I, I, I would say that already in your introduction, you didn't stay consistent because you took a verse about Israel, or Judah coming out of Babylonian captivity and applied it to you going to Australia, coming out of Australia. I, I, yeah, some, some questionable things there. I've written from the perspective of Jesus speaking. Whoa. So this is written from the perspective that Jesus is speaking to help readers feel more personally connected with him. That is very troubling. She is writing from the perspective that Jesus is speaking to you. But is it if it's Jesus speaking to you, you're going to read words from the Bible. You're not going to read words, words written by a woman from her devotional time. You see the, the possible danger here? So the first personal pronoun, the, so the first person singular, I, me, my, mine, always refers to Christ. You refers to the reader. So she's going to use the first person singular in the devotional, I, me, my, mine. That's supposed to be Christ. You is the reader. I've included scripture references after each day reading. As I waited in God's presence, Bible verses or fragments of verses would come to mind. So you're just in God's presence and a, and a fragment of a verse would come to mind. What do you do with a fragment of a verse? How can you even use the fragment of a verse? So I interwove those into the devotions. Words from the scriptures, some paraphrase, some quoted or indicated in italics. Certain Bible verses figure rather heavily in my writing. This is because God often uses these passages to strengthen and encourage me, arising, raising my sights from my light and momentary troubles to his eternal perspectives. Themes of thankfulness and trust reoccur often during my listening times. These themes are quite prevalent in the Bible, and they're essential for a close relationship with the Lord. The devotional in this book are meant to be read slowly, preferably in a quiet place, with your Bible open. Remember that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. May you enjoy his presence and his peace in ever-increasing measure. Oh, no. I just turned the page. Okay, I'm I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a seizure right now. All right, we've got a major problems going on here. 
We have we have a major issue developing. But he, here's where I know I, I, I'm, I'm just I'm going to I'm going to throw my Kindle across the room. The very first devotional is this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Those are words for people in who were in captivity in Babylon. That hasn't that is not a promise for us. That's a promise for people in Babylonian captivity. Oh man. All right. Uh, we're going to I mean, if you start off with the, one of the most misquoted, ripped out of context verses, maybe in the history of Christianity, and you're not going to start your devotional by saying, a lot of devotionals would use this scripture out of context, but I care about hermeneutics. And that. No, 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 no. It just throws that right out there. Jeremiah 29, 11 is promise spoken to those in Babylonian captivity. And, and, and pe- people quote that all the time. Hey, I, I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Yeah, and, and Christians quote that, and then their child goes to school and gets shot and killed. Was, did God have a plan? See, you, you got to be careful how you quote these verses. This is specifically like, I am going to bring you out of Babylonian captivity. I promised you you would go in, and th- there are those of you who are going to come out, and there's a promise here. But... So the devotional is, well, we'll before I, sh- I shouldn't even have turned the page. I apologize. So we'll end with this. This is devotional. It's going to up, take an experiential approach to Christianity where the author is going to write as if they are speaking for God. And again, let me go back and read that because it's very important. Uh, I have written... And I quote, from the perspective of Jesus speaking to help readers feel more personally connected with him. So the first person singular, I, me, my, mine, always refers to Christ. She's going to speak for Christ. She's going to speak as if Christ is speaking. And if if what is said is not from the Bible, then it's not from Christ. It's from her own vivid imagination unless you believe the devotional is inspired by God, which the author claims that it is not, but then goes and speak, writes as if she's speaking for Christ. If you don't see a philological problem there, I don't know. And guess what? This is a devotional that's been bought, sold over 40 million copies. All right, so we finished the introduction. We'll, we'll, do, we'll look at the first devotional in the book, And then I'll probably pick one maybe in the middle and maybe I'll pick one from the end and then probably that's about it. But I I just wanted to, since this is in the news that this devotional has now sold over 40 million, I I think it's time to address it and we can already see the major problems. But I want you to just think about my dividing Christianity into two types, the experiential and the intellectual. And you can tell me what you think in regards to that. All right. So they completely rip the Isaiah passage out of context. And the very first devotional goes to the famous Jeremiah 29 passage. And I I, I don't know what they're going to do with it, but the fact that, I mean, unless you're going to say, hey, many people try to apply this to themselves, but first and foremost, this goes to 
the people in Babylonian captivity. If you're not going to do that, then the devotional is already completely suspect from a biblical standpoint. So, all right, we'll talk about it more soon. I'm glad we were able to make it 47 minutes because I didn't think I was going to have that long. I just had one of those chances to run up the stairs and do something really quick. I don't always get that opportunity at this time of day, but I did. So hopefully, um, I will, hopefully this will spark some conversation. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I know there will be many of you who disagree. You can. Um, I understand most Christians want to be the, in the experiential camp, and I know there's a few of us who want to be more in the intellectual camp. And when I say intellectual, I'm not saying that to mean smarter. I'm just saying that we're the intellectual side is suspect of all the experiential side because, well, it, it does things like this, completely mm, abuses the actual meaning of Scripture and turns God's Word into Plato, and that I cannot tolerate. There you go. And I know if I went with an experiential Christianity, I'd end up forming a Christianity to my own liking, my own desires, and my own wants. And I know my own desires and my own wants would not be a good Christianity, and I would end up in a really bad place. Even when I'm trying to pursue an intellectual Christianity, my own sinful nature has led me to many downfalls and problems in my own life. So, yeah. All right. I'll stop right there. Thanks for listening. Uh, Email me. Everyone have a great day. Can't wait to hear hear from you. And we'll probably be doing some more live broadcasts this afternoon. All right, thanks for listening. God bless.